Hello from the Financial Times in London. I'm Polita Clark, and this is News in Focus, where we offer our insights into the stories that matter. It's two years since the New York Times and the New Yorker published explosive reports revealing that more than a dozen women had accused Harvey Weinstein, the Hollywood producer, of sexual assault and other crimes over a period of at least 20 years. The scandal triggered the Me Too movement, and Mr Weinstein, co-founder of the Miramax Entertainment Group, is now awaiting trial on rape and other sex crime charges, all of which he denies. Rowena Chu is a former Miramax employee who kept quiet about her experiences with Mr Weinstein until a month ago. She's here with me now, along with the FT's legal correspondent, Kate Bioli, and Rowena's going to tell her story and explain how a non-disclosure agreement and a settlement of £125,000 forced her to remain silent for more than 20 years. It should be noted that Mr Weinstein has denied her allegations and claimed the pair had a consensual relationship, which Rowena rejects as untrue. Rowena, let's start at the beginning. Tell us a bit about your life before you met Harvey Weinstein. So in 1998, I had only graduated from university two years previously. So really working for Harvey was my first or second job out of college. And what had you been studying at college? I read um, English Language and Literature at Oxford. And how come you decided to get into the film industry? So at Oxford, I did a great deal of film and theatre. I worked in theatre for a short while, but film seemed to have more long-term prospects. And so I ended up at International Creative Management, which was one of Hollywood's big talent agencies. And it was from ICM that I was recruited to work for Harvey's office. Here in London? Here in London. And so you started working for him in 1998 in Miramax's offices here. That's right. And... You'd actually been warned, I think, by Zelda Perkins, one of Mr Weinstein's assistants here in London, that he could be a bit of a pest and he was someone to look out for. Is that right? Right. So I think that at my interview with Zelda, she had said that he was difficult to manage and that I was to handle him robustly. And I think it is important to stress that, you know, pretty much every boss in the film industry is difficult to manage, whether man or woman. So I didn't feel deterred by the fact that he would be hard to manage. I think that's a sort of part of the business of being an assistant in the film industry. It wasn't particularly clear how much that difficulty is to do with temper and how much of it was to do with sexual predation. And obviously that became, unfortunately, quite clear later. Okay, so you started working for him in 98. And what specifically was the role? I was also an assistant to Harvey Weinstein. Both Zelda and I were assisting him and I was learning the job from Zelda. So I was, in effect, a second assistant. It was our role when Harvey came over to London and then travelled across Europe to accompany him, either to film festivals most typically, but also if films were shooting across Europe, we would also do that kind of travel. And then the times in between when he was in the US or elsewhere in the world, we would be back at the office working on general office work, as in reading scripts and general work for Miramax. And so when you first met him, how did he seem to you? He is certainly right from the beginning very difficult to handle. When I first met Harvey, it was at a screening room in Soho where we were looking at the most recent version of Shakespeare in Love. Certainly it's not like a typical encounter with a boss, as in there are no pleasantries. He doesn't come to you and say, hi, I'm Harvey Weinstein and I hear you're Rowena and joining my office. Really, I was asked to do exactly what he asked me to do. And so I tell a story about how we sat in a screening room and he asked me to sit in front of him. And that was really my sort of audition, as it were, for working for Harvey. What happened? Well, he asked me to sit in front of him during the screening, and if I were to move in any way from sitting in front of him, he would yell at me. But then you went to the Venice Film Festival, and tell us what happened there. 
The next month, I travelled to the Venice Film Festival and the Deauville Film Festival, and uh, we did the two festivals back to back. It's a fairly typical trip with Harvey. You get a call from New York saying he's on his way, and you're whisked off by limousine and private jet. And as his assistant, you do what you can to facilitate his time while he's there. So that can mean phone calls and organising meetings and making sure that the flow in and out of the office, which is the same as the hotel room suite, is smooth. So that's really the job of the assistant. On the night in question, typically what happens is Zelda, being the more senior of the two assistants, would wake Harvey in the morning and work with him in the morning from about 6am to about 10am on her own. And then I would come on duty and we would work together during the business of the day, which is typically from about 10am to 10pm. So it's a long day. In the evening, I would remain back at the hotel, which also doubled as our office, reading scripts, sorting out paperwork, lining up calls and things like that. And Zelda would accompany him to the event of that evening, be it a dinner or a gala or an award ceremony. So when he got back from the dinner or the event, he would ask, which scripts I had read and for my thoughts on those scripts. And so we would spend a lot of the evening discussing the content of the scripts and what I thought was strong and what I thought was not particularly strong. And that segued into, you know, more general discussions about my ambitions for being in the film industry. You know, at that time I was just starting out in film. So he would talk a lot about the things that I'd wanted to do with my life in film. And some of that would segue into personal details as to who I was dating, who my boyfriend was at the time, what his aspirations were, and so on and so forth. And so I think, you know, there's a process where some of the discussion is professional and to do with the work that I was there for, which is assessing scripts. And, uh, you know, fairly quickly, the conversation turns to personal and also physical, because, you know, as we all know from the various accounts of things that have happened to people in different hotel rooms, there are requests for massages, Harvey is frequently naked in these types of situations. And, you know, it can become unpleasant and difficult quite quickly. And was he naked when you were in the hotel room? Yes. So did you just arrive, walk in the door and he was... I'm already in the hotel at the time when he returns from his event. When he returns from his event, in order to be comfortable, he gets into a robe. Right. And then removes the robe. Correct. And then how did he make his approach to you? What happened on that particular evening? It was a fairly typical evening in the sense that I was reading scripts and we're having some discussion about the scripts, which led into uh, discussions on a personal nature. And things became difficult quite quickly and I ended up being pushed against the bed and um, he attempted to rape me. After that happened, what did you decide to do? Well, the following morning, I went to talk to Zelda as soon as we had time on our own, which was really when Harvey left the hotel suite for lunch. And, you know, I told her what had happened the night before, which was a difficult conversation, and she reacted pretty emotionally. And so we were both in the hotel room, you know, really considering our options. And I think it was very difficult for us at that time. We were far from home. I was 24, she was 25. And we actually had very few resources at our disposal. I mean, we had come to Venice via means that Mirax had provided, via transportation that they provided, via an Amex corporate card that they provided. We didn't have a lot of resources at our own disposal to make our own way back to London. So we had briefly talked about going to the Italian police, but it just seemed incredibly difficult. Neither of us spoke Italian. We didn't know whether we'd be believed. And so it seemed that the best option was to continue with the trip with certain provisos clearly in place. So number one, Zelda was absolutely adamant that she was going to go down and confront Harvey right away, which she did. And she was also adamant that I wouldn't spend any time in a hotel room with him by myself for the rest of the trip. And she very much protected me in that sense. And I didn't spend any alone time with Harvey for the rest of that trip. But we did finish the trip in Venice and also subsequently at the Deauville Film Festival. 
And so it was really fast forward a few days when we got back to London, when we considered longer term what our options would be. And we did approach more senior people in the office. You know, really, our first port of call was Donna Gelotti, who was a producer on Shakespeare in Love. But, you know, there weren't very many people working in the Miramax office at that time. So Donna was the most senior person we could go to, and there weren't many other alternatives. I mean, it wasn't like working for a corporate company where there's an HR policies in place and HR offices to go to. Perhaps there would be more of that in New York, but in London, we were an outpost. Eventually, you decided that you should look at hiring a lawyer. So Donna had recommended that we hire a lawyer and, you know, really at 24 and 25, we didn't know how to go about finding a lawyer. We sort of did what in retrospect seems to be ridiculous things, but we went and talked to the Citizens Advice Bureau. Mm. I was in law school at the time, so I spoke to my law professor at the time. But, you know, we spoke on the condition of anonymity. We didn't mention our names. We didn't say who we worked for. We didn't even say which industry we were in. And so there's only really so much advice people can give you when you can't part with any of the details of why you might be seeking a lawyer. So, you know, Zelda walked around Soho looking for a lawyer and eventually we were able to hire a small firm that took on the negotiations for the NDA. Okay. And tell us what happened then, because you had this reasonably small firm here. And of course, Miramax had quite a large firm. What happened initially once you had decided to go with this small firm? Our first step was to invoke constructive dismissal and to fax the New York office to say that Zelda and I were resigning. That was the first step that we took. We invoked constructive dismissal over Harvey's behaviour. Then we were contacted by Harvey's lawyers quite quickly after that. Uh, so we were summoned to negotiations at you know, a large London law firm, which turned out to be Allen and Overy. And so we spent time at the offices of Allen and Overy while an agreement was bashed out. And so for both of us, when we started these kind of negotiations, it wasn't the intention that we would sign a settlement agreement. In fact, we very much wanted to take Harvey either to legal authorities, that would be the police, or report him within his own corporate structure. And since Harvey was the CEO of Miramax, that would have meant going to the Walt Disney Company. So the priority at that time was really to expose Harvey and to stop these types of assaults happening to any other women. It certainly wasn't to sign a settlement agreement or to take any form of settlement. Well, who advised you to take the agreement? Our lawyers. So it was offered by Ellen and Overy? Well, as I've said several times, we were pretty young at the time, 24 and 25, and the grown-ups in the room, so to speak, all seemed to make it very clear that our only path forward was to sign a settlement agreement and accept a settlement and go away and never speak of this again. And in order for us to be able to put through some of the clauses that we very much wanted to put through, that Harvey should go to therapy, that Miramax should put in place some HR ombudsman and so on, it was suggested to us that the only way we could get some of this on the table was if we agreed to be silenced and to accept a sum of money in order to never speak of this again. I'm actually surprised that we ended up being ushered into a process where we found ourselves negotiating a non-disclosure agreement without really stronger suggestion from either our lawyers or other more senior people in Miramax that we should go to the police. We seemed to be the only people who suggested that we should go to the police and we were very much discouraged from doing so. I think the feeling was really that we wouldn't be believed, we didn't have any physical evidence, it was a case of he said, she said in a hotel room in Venice and you know we really had very little power compared to the most powerful man in Hollywood as he was at the time. But the nature of the negotiations that you had also sounded quite extraordinary. At one time you were kept overnight from about 5pm to 5am in negotiations. Did your lawyers never say, hang on, we need to take a break here? 
Well, I think the whole process was pretty intimidating and it was very difficult to push back. I mean, there were other issues also that, looking back, were very difficult. We were escorted to the bathroom at all times. We weren't allowed to make phone calls. We weren't even allowed to keep a pen and paper. And in the end, we signed this incredibly egregious and very difficult NDA. I mean, there was no way that this was boilerplate, 30 pages of a very difficult agreement to adhere to, and we weren't allowed to keep a copy of it. Now, that is not necessarily normal, correct? Oh, no, very much not. Highly irregular, in fact. And your lawyers didn't object? Well, I think that there was a feeling that we very much wanted certain clauses, which I had emphasised we wanted to put safeguards in place to protect other women. You know, for example, were Harvey to assault anyone else and to settle with them within two years of our agreement, it would automatically trigger his resignation from Miramax and a report to the Walt Disney Company, which is something we very much wanted in the first place. So the feeling was really that in order for us to put through the things that we really wanted, we had to give up certain things, as with any negotiation. But... um. Yeah, I think the clause that we couldn't keep a copy of the negotiation is actually particularly difficult to defend. I really don't have anything to say about that, other than there was a high level of paranoia from Harvey's side and from his lawyers. You know, when you look at certain clauses within the NDA, a lot of the clauses go into a great detail about who we can speak to, who we may not speak to. Even um, if there's a court case, I believe, there's a provision that says that if he ever appeared in court and you were called as a witness you supposedly were supposed to limit your remarks, which seems... Right, like... or in fact, use our efforts to support Harvey's side of things. I mean, that can't be legal. Well, I think quite a bit of the NDA seems like it couldn't be legal. I would say about the NDA that it's certainly immoral and unethical. Whether or not it's technically illegal, that's really for the lawyers to decide. I think it takes a while for the law to catch up. I think the way that our NDA is drafted is certainly not the original use for NDAs. And so that brings us really into the controversial and murky area of should such NDAs exist and should moves be made really to abolish these types of NDAs that are essentially being used to cover up crimes. What led you finally to decide to go public? It's an incredibly difficult decision. I did not go public in October 2017 when Jodie and Megan first broke the story and it was a very conscious decision at that time not to go public with many other victims. I had quite a young family my youngest child was only six months old at the time and I really, you know, considered the personal impact on my family. I hadn't really been able to talk to my own family of origin. I hadn't had conversations with my parents and my sister or friends of mine from 20 years ago. And I think also when you've maintained a nearly 20-year silence, it's not something that you break overnight. It took a while to kind of emotionally get to the place where I thought I'd be ready to come forward with the story. Kate, sitting here listening to this, you've been following moves in the UK to persuade the government here to legislate to ensure that NDAs can't be used to cover up harassment and behaviour of the sort that Rowena's experienced. What's actually happened so far? Well, there remains a lot of confusion about this area. Last year we had the Women and Equalities Committee look into this and they found some really distressing evidence that NDAs were being used routinely to cover up claims of harassment and as a way of avoiding really interrogating and investigating these discrimination claims. So they came out with a series of recommendations and a lot of those were around making it an offence for an NDA or an employer to stop people from reporting things to the police. 
and more recommendations along those lines. And now the BASE, or the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, has also looked at this and they've come out with a series of proposed new laws. And those include things like preventing any NDA from stopping someone from going to the police, from reporting discrimination to a regulator, from stopping people from reporting these things to a healthcare professional or a therapist, for example. And they want to see more enforcement or better enforcement against NDAs that don't subscribe to all of those rules. But so far, that is really just talk because we haven't seen any new rules. And a lot of people are calling, for example, the Perkins, for example, very keen to see NDAs banned in these cases where they are just used to cover up harassment. But we haven't seen much progress on that. And that's an area of quite a lot of debate. And do we think that NDAs are being used in the UK and perhaps in other European countries as much as they've been in the US? Or are there any countries where they seem to be more prevalent than others? Or is it some Something that's probably just crept up quietly and is, yeah. in fact, very widespread around the world. It's actually very difficult to know. I mean, by their nature, NDAs are secretive clauses. We just don't have the data. And that's part of the worrying thing here. You know, who knows just how many of these have been signed and for what purpose? A lot of lawyers are saying that what we really need are for companies to have effectively registers of NDAs that have been signed so that you can see are their pockets of the departments where they are being used time and again, arguably for the wrong purposes. But without that data, it's very difficult to move forward. And what do you think about the way in which the lawyers behaved in Rowena's case? Yeah, I think a key thing to say here is that we're talking a lot about the reform of NDAs. And I think in many cases, powerful people have used or abused the confusion around what is and is not already allowed under the NDA regime to abuse the rules, basically. But it is very clear when you speak to most people that it is entirely wrong to draft any NDA which would prevent someone from speaking to a therapist, prevent them from disclosing that information to regulators, to the police. It is entirely wrong to prevent someone from having a copy of the agreement that they have signed. And it's also wrong to pressure or harass someone into signing one of these. So I think it's quite clear that there have been egregious behaviours here, which most people would consider to be unacceptable under the current regime. Rowena, you're not suggesting that NDAs should be banned outright, I don't think, or, or are you? You know, I think this is a very difficult issue. I think one thing that's often misunderstood about NDAs is they're frequently requested by the victim because they feel that they're mid-career or they have some kind of reputation to protect or a career path to maintain. And I think that a victim of sexual assault is often beguiled into thinking that they can sign an NDA and draw a line under a very unpleasant experience and move on with their life. I can really only speak personally. Certainly at the age of 24, I thought I was drawing a line and able to walk away from, you know, a very unpleasant chapter in my young life so far. And I can say that over the last 20 years, that's obviously been far from the case. It's very difficult to move on emotionally. It was certainly impossible to find another job in the film industry. And essentially our careers and our emotional lives were for a long time derailed after the signing of the NDA. So I think these are repercussions for us that we couldn't foresee at the time. And having heard from lots of other victims of sexual harassment who've signed NDAs, sadly, my story isn't the only one to sort of end in that way. So whilst I wouldn't call necessarily for their outright abolition, I think there very much needs to be much more regulation around the way they are used. And certainly I think abolition wouldn't be too far for the cases where they are covering up harassment or outright violent mm. crime. And what do you think, Kate? What's the 
best way of reforming the system, in your view? Well, I think we, we certainly need new rules about where NDAs should be used and where they are inappropriate. But I think most of all right now, we need more clarity around what is and is not allowed under the current rules. And we need more standardisation of how these clauses are drawn up and around the behaviour around that process in terms of people taking independent legal advice, being given the time to digest these things and being given copies of the agreement, for example. So I think there's quite a lot that we could already do without even the need for more legislation. But I also think that we definitely need more transparency around the way that they're being used Mm -hmm. currently, things like these company registers, and we need more information about their use and abuse. And would you agree? Does that sound a reasonable set of provisions. Yes, absolutely. I think for the victims, it's difficult enough as it is. You're already under a very stressful situation. And so it's not up to the victim really to understand how NDAs can or cannot be used. So much more education needs to happen on the part of the lawyers so that they can advise victims of sexual assault properly. And I think actually, we also need much better enforcements in terms of avoiding NDAs that have been drawn up in the wrong kind of settings or in the wrong way. Well, that's actually a really interesting point. So that would actually allow people who've signed them to come forward and attempt to have them voided in a court, presumably? Well, I mean, it would be very difficult, and this is something under debate. I think it probably would be the case that any new law would not be retrospective. It would probably mean that we would have new legislation setting out the rules and the parameters around NDAs, and then you would have enforcement of those NDAs going forward. But I think a lot of people will be left feeling very concerned about all of the people who might have signed them in the past in settings where that's been abused. And just finally, Rowena, I suppose, you know, for anyone listening to this, if they've ever had anything remotely like the experiences that you've been through, what would be your advice to them now? I think it's difficult to generalise about that because in the fields of sexual assault, everyone has their own deeply personal, deeply traumatising experiences. I think that it's a sort of very individual journey, whether or not to speak out. Certainly, I don't feel I can judge whether someone remains silent or is prepared to speak out. I think if you have signed an NDA and you're on the verge of breaking it and you want to come out with your story, I would definitely say get your ducks in a row with lining up your own personal support system. You know, make sure that things are squared away with your family. You know, I wanted to make sure that things were squared away with my husband and my children and then my family of origin before I spoke out because the impact could be much more devastating than you could imagine. I think that it's complicated whether you remain silent. That's devastating in its own way. But also, even if you come forward with your story, that creates another burden that you didn't carry when you were silent in the sense that once the story is out in the public, it grows legs and you can't necessarily manage it. So that has its own pressures. Rowena Chu, thank you so much for telling your story. And Kate Bialy, thank you very much too. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. 
Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.